Thank you so much for joining us today. We're always encouraged to know God is working through new beginnings to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please let us know. Send us an email at mystory@newbeginningsnj.org. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Welcome, everybody. I love Saturday nights. You guys pack this place on Saturday nights, and it's like, yes. Um, I want to say a word I haven't been able to say much. Tonight. Everybody say tonight. tonight. Good. It feels good for me to be able to say tonight. And my staff knows what I'm talking about. Um, listen, we're going to prepare our hearts tonight to take communion together. And I don't, I'm not sure what background you may come from, what your church background has been. I come from a church background where we placed a lot of significance upon communion. And I believe most of you come, have come from the same type of background where uh, you took communion just about every time, well, every time you went to church. Um, we don't do it that way here as far as frequency goes because we don't want this to become something that becomes um, just taken for granted. You understand what I'm saying? So, so when we do take communion together, we like to dedicate the entire service to that subject because we feel like it's important for us to prepare our hearts to receive communion. If the communion is a representation and a symbol of Jesus himself, his body, his blood, then we should prepare our hearts to receive that. Amen? Amen. So I want to bring to you tonight a concept <clears throat> that I have seen very clearly in the Word, and I, I've taught on this um, many, many times over the years. The topic of communion being the expression or one of the greatest expressions of the grace of God in the symbols that we're going to receive. Towards the end of the service, we're going to take this, this little cup here. You don't have to do it now because we're, we're a little ways away from that. And, and there, there's a wafer, and then there's a cup of juice, and we know that that, that wafer um, is without yeast, it's without leavening, it's without anything, because that represents the spotlessness and the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that, that grape juice that we use here um, represents the blood that he shed on the cross for you and I, that blood that brought us back into relationship with God our Father. It's not something we should just take lightly. It is not something we should just throw uh, on as a ritual at the end of the service. We should prepare our hearts to receive this. We don't do this as a ritual and a tradition. We do it as a fulfillment of a command that Jesus said to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Now, I would venture to say that most of us are very familiar with the Last Supper, the celebration that took place, the meal that was being observed the night before Jesus went to the cross. Now, understand this. What they were doing that night, what Jesus was doing that night, was reenacting a 1,500-year-old tradition, 1,500 years at his time. Our time now, we're talking 3,500 years ago, approximately, give or take a few years, was the very first Passover. Now, if you're not aware of this, and uh, the Last Supper, we've termed it and call it the Last Supper. We call it, but in, in actuality, it was a celebration of Passover that particular year. Uh, it would have been the first night of Passover. It's a meal celebrating God rescuing his people from slavery. There's so much symbolism there. 
There's so, it's so rich. It's so deep. It's just you see Jesus in it from the beginning of that, that celebration to the end. So the centerpiece of that, that meal, that, that celebration, would be the Passover lamb. That lamb would have been freshly slaughtered. It would have been flesh, roasted. And following the commands that God gave to Israel through Moses, and we have it recorded for us in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, Moses receives instructions from God and gives those instructions to the people, starting in verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for our household. And if the household is too small for, for, for the lamb, for the entire lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5 is extremely important. Your lamb shall be without blemish. It's got to be a perfect one. There could be no deformities. There could be no tears. There could be no spot. It had to be a perfect lamb, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. We could talk about that. There's a lot of symbolism involved there. Uh, Verse 6. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, twilight between 3 and 6 o'clock. And they shall take some of the blood. Here's the important part. And they shall take some of the blood from, from that lamb that was slaughtered and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So symbolically, the, the, the head of the house would take some of the blood from the land that was slaughtered. They would take that blood in a the basin. They would take uh, a bunch of, of some type of vegetation or whatever. Uh, traditionally, uh, we're told that they use what was called hyssop. Hyssop is modern day what we would call fresh oregano, okay? So it's nice and spicy, you know? So we take this and take that blood and go over to the doorpost. And they would strike the top of the door. They would strike, strike the sides of the doors. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to see the picture that we have here. If you were looking at, that, at the door of that house after they had, had, had smeared that blood over it, we know today we're looking at the cross. It was symbolic of them. It was something for them to look forward to in the future. But the important thing is this. The blood covering the house was protection. When the angel of death would pass by, it would know that it would have to pass over that household if it saw the blood. Are you listening? We symbolically carry the blood of Jesus upon our lives. We, we can say that we are under his blood, and his blood has purchased our salvation. And so symbolically, we're off limits to the enemy of our souls. Amen? Amen. So, Jesus is celebrating that night. There's a meal. It's been prepared. It's been laid out with great detail. This is the biggest celebration of the year for those individuals. Celebrating their rescue, their ransom. Celebrating them coming out of Egypt, coming toward, heading towards their promised land, walking through the Red Sea, which had been parted on both sides. And all that would have been, uh, would have been relived and would have been 
recited. The whole story would have been recited that night at the Last Supper. But now if you look at all, the, all, at all those that are around that table, all those that are seated there, all those that have been guests at the table, they're being reminded about the Passover lambs. They're being reminded about the doorposts being painted with blood. They're being reminded of how God protected each household from the angel of death. Now remember, this is the last night that Egypt, excuse me, that Israel would spend in Egypt. This is the last night that they're going to spend as slaves. They're celebrating this meal. They've sacrificed this lamb. They've taken the blood. They painted it on the doorposts. The Bible tells us that they were to eat with their staff in their hand, with their cloak tucked in their belt so that they could leave in haste and, and go and just leave this place and get out from under the bondage of slavery, get out from under Pharaoh and start heading into the promised land, the land of freedom. At the Last Supper, it is the last night that the disciples will spend in slavery towards sin. Sin's power is going to be broken the very next day when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, it is complete, it's been fulfilled. The very last night, they didn't have a clue. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was happening in the realm of the spirit. But in the very next day, the power of sin would be broken off of mankind forever. Amen? Jesus knows as he's sitting at that, that table at the Last Supper with his disciples, his mother, the other women are there, that this is the night that he will become the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, who's at this table? I want to I make it a little bit more personal now. I want to I bring us into the, the scenario here, okay? Because uh, uh, maybe the best way I can explain this is, this is like Thanksgiving, how many, of you, how many of you celebrate Thanksgiving with family and friends and all of Okay. So, so how, many of you, how many of you have perfect Thanksgiving holiday meals? Perfect. That you, you, you didn't forget to take the bag out of the turkey and the whole bit and the stuffing didn't burn and, you know, the whole bit. The potatoes are not too lumpy or watery. But that's the easy part. How many of you have perfect holiday, had perfect Thanksgiving conversations at the table. Because most of the time, you're sitting with people that you probably haven't had a meal in God knows how long. And so I don't know about you, but you're probably like our family was many years ago, where you felt like you had a script. You can talk about this, you can't talk about that. Don't talk about politics because Uncle so-and-so is going to be there. Don't talk about church. Don't talk about this because this one is going to be there. They might get offended. And so there's awkwardness. Yes or no? Okay. So it's no different at the Last Supper. We have this tendency to, we always picture this like, was it Leonardo da Vinci or who was it? Michelangelo? Leonardo da Vinci painted the Last Supper. Leonardo. Leonardo da Vinci, the Last Supper. Everybody get on the other side of the table. Okay. So we have this tendency to think the Last Supper was perfect. Everybody was there like this. They stayed there the whole night. Oh, bit. You can pick Judas out because you see the guy that looks like a crook. It's got to be him. Peter's like, I don't know what's going on here. So it was a very awkward night, and I'll tell you why. James and John choose this night of all nights. Now, they don't know Jesus is going to the cross. They choose this night to pull a power play. And James and John, 
the two brothers, their mother decides that he, she's going to pressure Jesus to make sure that when he enters into his kingdom, because remember, they thought he's going to come, he's going to throw the Romans out, he's going to take over militarily, he's going to be this great military leader, he's going to establish his kingdom. So she's like, listen, could you do me a favor? Like, when my kid, when you come into this kingdom, can you make sure that my son's one on your left hand, one on your right hand? He's like, could you picture Jesus? Let's make him real tonight. Could you picture Jesus? How would you feel if you know within 24 hours you're going to get tormented, tortured, nailed to a piece of wood, you're going to die, you're going to go into a grave, and this woman wants to pay up, and you're sitting there smiling, going, honey, if you only knew what I'm facing in the next 24 hours, you wouldn't be worrying about where your sons are going to sit. Are you listening to me? I want this to be real. Get out of the stained glass windows. Get out of the paintings. This is real life. Who else do we have here? We've got Peter, big mouth Peter, who within, before the next 12 hours, not even 12 hours, probably in eight hours, he's going to betray Jesus and, and, and tell people, I don't know who this guy is, never saw him before. He's sitting at the table. Jesus knows this. And then we got Judas. Who's going to sell his master out for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver? And Jesus is maintaining his composure. And Jesus is smiling. He's washing their feet. He's teaching them the things that he believes they need to know. Why? Because he knows what they're going to face in the next 24 hours. He knows that they're going to go hide themselves in the house because they're going to be afraid that when the religious leaders get done with Jesus, they're going to come after them, paralyzed with fear. And so he teaches them all the great teaching that you and I have on the subject of the Holy Spirit, on the subject of love, appears in the chapters of John, the Gospel of John, from chapter 13 to chapter 17, covers everything that took place at the Last Supper. Detailed teaching. You talk about love. You talk about commitment. He's not allowing all their, their human frailties and their, their, their um, dysfunction to affect him. He can't afford to. The eternal destiny of mankind is hanging in the balance that night. Now let me ask you this question. James and John, who were jockeying for position. Peter, who's going to deny Jesus. Judas, who's going to sell Jesus out. The rest of them are oblivious to what's going on. Do these people, are they worthy of a relationship with Jesus? Absolutely not. They are getting something they don't deserve. Amen. Church, look around. He's doing the same thing tonight. He's giving us something that we do not deserve. We're all unworthy of grace. We should receive justice instead. But because of his love... We receive his grace. Amen? Galatians chapter 2, verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, this is the only way we're going to come into relationship with our Father in heaven is going to be by grace. It is not going to be because you're such a great person. It is not going to be because I stand up here and preach. It's not going to be because you gave millions of dollars. It's not going to be because you sat home and prayed for hours. It's going to be because Jesus Christ himself went to the cross in your place and my place. And when you and I place our faith in that fact, we receive salvation. Thank God it's that way. None of us would make it. 
None of us would make it. I want to bring you to an incident that took place in ancient history. One of the worst moments in the history of the Jewish people took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's not talked about a lot. It's not referred to, hardly referred to at all. Moses had been commanded by God to gather the entire nation. Now you're talking about, they went into Egypt, 70 people, 430 years previously. Over 430 years, of 70 people multiplied, reproduced, and Bible commentators and Bible historians tell us that anywhere from two to two and a half to three million people left Egypt that day. They eventually found their way to Mount Sinai. So two and a half million, just picture two and a half million people gathered at the base of this mountain. And they had been given instruction by God. God told Moses, don't let them touch the mountain. Don't let them come near it. They posted something, some type of a barrier, so that not even the animals would touch the base of the mountain because it was such a holy place. And he said, if anyone touches it, they're to be stoned or they're to be shot through with an arrow. This is a serious thing. Exodus chapter 19 covers this whole history. Watch this now. I want you to get this point. I want you to get it really, really good tonight. From Exodus chapter 19, five chapters later, it took five chapters for God to tell Moses what he expected of his people. The Ten Commandments were given during this time. Other commands and regulations and rituals were explained to Moses. Five chapters later, after he had spent 40 days and 40 nights on this mountain, he's received the Ten Commandments, hundreds of instructions, come down to the people. He comes down to the people, and he reads all the law of God, all these commands, all the rituals, how the sacrifice is supposed to take place. It's a massive transfer of information, massive Staggering. I, I don't think I could have made it through, to be truthful with you. Just one law after another, after another, another command, and another regulation, another rule. And then Exodus chapter 24. Israel makes the biggest mistake of their history. Verse 7, speaking of Moses, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Watch this now. It must have taken him hours. And this is what they said. Moses, tell him, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Say, Pastor, what's wrong with that? It was impossible. And God knew it was impossible. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. In other words, he consecrated them to what they had said. This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these what? Words. So what was the mistake? The mistake was this. Wrong response. Their response should have been to fall flat on their face and say, Moses, tell him we can't do this. We need a savior. We need a savior. 
what did they do? They condemned themselves for the next 1,500 years to an impossible task that is no way near, we are nowhere near equipped to fulfill. There's only been one person on this earth that fulfilled every one of those commands, and that's Jesus. Are you getting this? Now listen, I wonder, I was having a discussion with Pastor Matt over this yesterday, day before yesterday, whenever it was. And I said, Matt, I've got to wonder, had they responded properly, had they all two and a half million just went and tore their clothes and said, we can't do this. There's no way we're going to make it. It's impossible. Tell him, please, we need a savior. I have to believe that Jesus would have showed up on the scene right there, right there. You say, well, pastor, there's so much that talks about Jesus coming to Bethlehem. Yeah, and it was all written after this. All those prophecies were given after this. We need a savior. I've talked to people throughout the years. You know, you you try to explain that we're all sinners, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and I, and I would hear responses like this from sometimes. You may have heard the same things when you talk to maybe family or friends. Yeah, you don't understand. I, I'm not like you. I didn't kill anybody. Uh, I didn't use drugs. I, I'm not alcoholic. I'm not a gambler. I'm not, oh, no, you're a high-class sinner. I'm a low-class sinner. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you, are you listening to me tonight? Are you catching this, what I'm saying? They condemned themselves for the next 1,500 years to failure. It's impossible for them to have kept all of those laws and all those commands. And so let me ask you this question. Just follow me with this whole trend of thought here. Follow me. What was God's answer? Mercy. He knew. He knew they weren't going to be able to do it. But let me ask you this question. What does a person who sins and breaks the law of God need? They need a place of repentance, and they need a place of atonement. What is atonement? Bringing two parties together that have been at odds and restore that relationship. He knew. He knew. So what does he do? Out of the goodness of who he is his faithfulness towards us. What does he provide for them? He provides for them a place where sacrifice can be brought. A place, we call it the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a fancy religious word for a tent. And so after this fact, God gives revelation to Moses. Listen, you're going to have to build this place. And here's what I want you to use, and here's the coverings, and here's the articles, and here's the furnishings. And all of that structure served one purpose. It's the place where when you realize that you've screwed up, that you've messed up, that you've sinned, that you've broken my law, instead of me casting you out forever, I'm going to provide a place for you that you'll come. And something's got to die. You're going to have to bring a sacrifice. But you're going to take that blood, and you're going to bring it before me, and I'm going to receive that blood as a covering. Say covering. As a covering 
for your sins. Thank God he didn't leave them out. Thank God he didn't say, you said it, that's it. The first time you mess up, the first time you sin, I'm going to nuke you. In his mercy, he provided a place. And listen, someday I'm going to do a teaching on this because there's so much richness in it. So on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the people of Israel would bring the blood of the sacrifice. And the high priest would go into this this curtained-off area of that tabernacle, of that tent, of that structure, of place of worship. And he would place the blood and spill the blood on a place that was called the mercy seat. Oh, my gosh. It's all connected. It's all connected. Here's the rules. Here's the regulations. Here's what I expect from you. I know you can't do it. When they said, yes, we'll do it. Tell them we'll do it. They didn't say, we'll give it our best shot. They said, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it because, after all, we're holy people. We're good people. We're, we're strong. I love this one when I hear this one. No, you don't understand. I have a lot of willpower. And so God in his mercy provides a place of mercy, a place where the blood can be brought so that the sins could be covered. So Jesus the Lamb is killed so that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus is our atonement. Jesus is the one that brought us back together with God the Father. His body is our tabernacle, our temple of sacrifice. And that is the best definition of the grace of God, receiving something we absolutely do not deserve. Yet many of us, listen close, we're going to miss it. Yet many of us are still trying to do just that. We're trying to earn it. We're, 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 We're trying to say, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it, God. Don't worry about it. I'll do it. You know, maybe Joe might, he might slip, but I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll fulfill all your commands. I'll do everything you say. And I wonder how, how God laughs sometimes. And many of us are making the same mistake that the Israelites made. Instead of us falling on our face and saying, God, I can't do it. If any change is going to come in my life, it's only going to come because of your grace. I can't do this. If I'm going to hit it right It's going to be because you've led me, because you've empowered me, because your grace has brought me strength. If not, I'm lost. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm not going to make it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yet, we still keep our focus on ourselves rather than our focus on his grace. And one of the greatest enemies to grace is the mindset of perfectionism. Perfectionism. It, doesn't even, it even hurts to say it. Turn to somebody. Say perfectionism. perfectionism. Perfectionism, the act of constantly judging oneself by your achievements, measuring self-worth in terms of productivity and accomplishments. Living life as a perfectionist has its roots in pride and bears fruit of bondage and slavery. And that bondage manifests in lack of self-worth and it puts you on a roller coaster of unhealthy emotions. Galatians chapter, one, chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read to you if amplified. In this freedom, Christ has made us free and completely liberated us. Stand fast then. Do not be hampered and held ensnared and submit again to a yoke of slavery, which you have once put off. In other words, live in the freedom that you, that you gained when you first said, Jesus, I need you. I can't make it in this life without you. Live in that freedom. 
We, we come, we submit ourselves, we say that prayer, and then we turn around and try to take our life right back again. Try to be the good person. Now, now should we be good? Yeah, yeah, but it's not going to earn us salvation. It should be the byproduct of our salvation. We, we want to be good, not because we're afraid if we're not good, God's not going to let us in. We want to be good because we want to honor the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Somebody dies for you, you want to do what they want you to do so you can honor them, yes or no? So, the perfectionist is always worried about what people are going to think. If what was accomplished was good enough. The perfectionist holds himself, hold themselves to unreasonable standards and schedules, but most dangerously, dangerously, they keep the focus on self and not on God. Look, I know that without him, I cannot accomplish anything in this ministry. I can't. Learned a couple things here and there, but bottom line, who's kidding who? This is his work. It's only been by leaning on him and depending on him and trusting in him and listening to his voice, listening to what the word says, that we've been able to accomplish anything. It's no different in your life. And I hope you found that out because it's a horrible thing to become a slave again once you've been set free. Amen? James chapter 2 tells us that mercy triumphs over justice. Now, what should the Israelites have received at the base of the mountain when they said, we're going to do it? They should have received justice. But what did they receive? Mercy. Mercy. Okay. You can picture God saying, okay, cool your jets. I know you're going to mess up. And because I know you're going to mess up, I know you're going to need a place where you can come and settle this issue between us. Amen. Jesus is the mercy of God wrapped up in a person. At the Last Supper, Jesus was telling the disciples, look, Jesus, what he was saying to them was, look, this is all one-sided. Are you here, but you're only here as a recipient. You're not here as a, as a participant. You're here as a recipient. We come to Christ as a recipient. We don't come to Christ and say, look, if, if you'll help me here, then I'll do this for you, and I'll do that for you. And we do that sometimes in our ignorance. I just can't imagine how amused he must get. We try to work deals with God. How many of you have ever tried to work a deal with God? Come on, let me see your hands. How many try? Maybe if I give you this scenario, okay? You've been out all night partying. Your head, your, your stomach, every, you, your, everything, everything hurts. You, uh, if a fly lands on you, you it's, and, and you, you're laying in bed going, I'll never do this again, God. <laughs> if you get me through tonight, I'll do it. How, how many know what I'm talking about? I'll never do this again, God. I'll never do this again. You're, you're speeding down the road, and all of a sudden in the rearview mirror, you see the lights, and what do you start doing? Oh, God, if you just get me through this. I cannot afford more points. God, please, I'll never speed again, God. Always making deals that we know we're not going to keep. So he's telling the disciples, because you, you see, this is covenant language. Biblical covenant language is this. God says, and you see it all through the Old Testament. You've got to go looking for it, but it's there. You'll see God say, as for me, this is what I'm going to do for you. You see it over and over again, especially in Genesis with his dealings with Abram. But as for me, God says, this is what I'm going to do. And all we can do is receive. 
Abram had nothing to bring to God. You and I have nothing to bring to God. We can't come and, and bring and say, look, I've been such a good giver and I've been such a good prayer and, you know, I've been such a good, good and, you know, I washed the dishes for my wife and all this other kind of stuff. We can't bring, that doesn't, it's not that it doesn't mean anything that he doesn't appreciate it. It does, it cannot earn you salvation. It can't. So Jesus is saying to them at the Last Supper, I'm going to do all this. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? And who's there? Peter, James, John. By this point, Judas has already gone out and done what he needed to do. But the rest are there, and they didn't understand. Later on, they looked back, and it all made sense. Matthew 26, verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the, remissions of, for the remission of sins. Listen, we, this gets lost in our culture, and it gets lost in our society because we think Western. We think Western society. We think American Christianity. But listen, when Jesus sat at that table with all his disciples, dysfunctional as they were, his mother's there, the women are there helping. When he said this, they understood exactly what he was talking about. All of a sudden, I, would have, I can't wait to get to heaven and say, listen, can we see the rerun on the Last Supper? Because I imagine on the inside, I picture this, that when he said what he said in Matthew 26, this is, my, this is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you, their necks must have snapped because all of a sudden they realized, wait a second, this is covenant language. All throughout the Bible, you see the same symbols. When two individuals are going to make a covenant together, there's always bread, there's always wine. There's always some blood shed. Something died to seal that covenant. And all of a sudden, I could picture them just snapping to attention like, oh, wait a minute, it just got serious here. And as they looked back over the days after the cross, that morning waiting for the resurrection, they had to have taken comfort in this. Wait a second, wait a second. He invited us into this covenant when they took the bread, when they took the cup, they were saying, yes, yes, we'll receive this. You don't hear anymore, yeah, we'll do everything you tell us. What do we see? We receive this. We know we're never gonna measure up, but we'll receive this. And they began to get some revelation that night. Jesus invites him into this new relationship. And he, being the Lamb of God, offered himself. And listen, church, if rule-keeping could lead to eternal life, then God would have saved us with the Ten Commandments. But the law cannot save. The law can only point out our faults and our flaws. But we have to respond by faith to his grace, that provision that he made for us. We'll never be good enough. I'm not, I'm not saying we're all 
filthy degenerates. I'm not saying that we're all just weak old worms in the dust, the way religious people talk. What I'm saying is this. Without Christ, you are nothing. Without Christ, I am nothing. If there's any goodness that resides in us, it's because of his presence in our lives. We, in our lowest common denominator, have all sinned, have all fallen short of God's standard. And without a Savior, we're lost. And the only thing that can keep you from that Savior, there's only one thing, the devil can't keep you from him. Your sin can't keep you from him. The only thing that, you, that can keep you from experiencing that salvation is your pride, your arrogance, your haughtiness, of thinking that you can make it. You're good enough without him. You're fooling yourself, and you know it. God designed the plan of salvation in such a way that you and I cannot take any credit whatsoever for saving ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to just wrap this up in just a few minutes. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by free grace, God's unmerited favor, that you are saved, delivered from judgment, and made partakers of Christ's salvation through your faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves. It's not your own doing. It came not through your own striving, but it is a gift of God, not because of works, not the fulfillment of the law's demands, lest any man should boast. It is not the result of what anyone could possibly do, so no one can pride himself or take glory to himself. Other religions say that people can become good enough if they just try hard enough. Christianity is extremely honest and open and transparent. It just simply says, we cannot be good enough. We need grace. In communion, the bread and the cup remind us of the price that was paid for us. We're reminded that when we fall, when we fail, when we sin, we have a place to run to. And it's not, we don't have to travel to the Middle East. We don't have to go to a tent. We go to the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood for us. We have a place to run to. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, we have an attorney, we have a lawyer who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of all the world. Church, he's our refuge. He's our place of forgiveness. He is our place of sacrifice. I want to offer an opportunity before we go any further, before we take communion together. I want to offer an opportunity to any individual that's in this room tonight that has never come to this place of realization who Jesus is, what he means, what he's done, what it means to us. If you've never ever in your life said a very simple prayer from your heart. Jesus, I believe in who you are. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you came to this earth. You died on the cross. You paid for my sins. I believe that. And so, Lord Jesus, I declare with my mouth what I believe in my heart, that you are the Son of God, that you have been risen from the dead, 
And Jesus, I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want you to be my Savior. If you've never said that prayer, if you've never uttered that declaration of faith, I want to give us the opportunity tonight before we go any further. Would you all pray this prayer together with me? And for those of you that have never prayed this prayer, we're praying with you in the hope that you will respond from your heart and respond with faith. Amen. Let's all say this together. Father, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross as payment for my sins. I believe he's risen from the dead so that I could have eternal life. And so, Jesus, I ask you, be my Lord, be my Savior, come into my heart, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for forgiving my sins. I declare tonight that I am forgiven, I am saved from hell because of my faith in Jesus. And I am now a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Thanks for listening to this message. We pray that you're blessed and lifted up by God's word. If this message helped you today, please consider supporting New Beginnings financially. You can just go to newbeginningsnj.org and click the giving tab. We hope to see you soon.